On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about education, specifically grading students. It seems as though in some places there's a move afoot that, you know, students have been through enough with what's been going on. So we should not be grading them on their abilities, on their results. Is that a good thing? We're going to talk to someone. We're also going to talk about China and a new report from the Telegraph about the possible origins of COVID, at least according to documents in a report. And we are going to be talking about baseball and catching balls at ballparks and whether or not on a sort of related note, you should be allowed to whip balls at batters when you're a pitcher. You know, the fun stuff. Stay with us. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Read a report, uh, a report, a story, a, an opinion piece, I guess it was, based on a number of reports that I found to be honestly really, really, really troubling. Uh, it was done by an educational expert in the States. I grant you it was in the States. But the Reader's Digest version of what was written is that many school boards are showing their concern for students' mental and emotional health after a long time of upheaval during, because of the pandemic and all that kind of thing. That, on its face, that's a good thing. We want to be conscious and aware of students' mental and emotional health. But the way they're showing it is by kind of acting more like social workers, that school is more of an experience to be comforted than to actually be educated. Specifically, and this is where things get really strange. Specifically, the idea is now being put out there that grading students' work and measuring results from students' work is being pushed aside. Either out of concern that students who have been through a lot over the last year and a half, that their psyche might, might be damaged if they don't succeed, and therefore we don't want to damage their psyche by telling them they didn't pass that math test, or out of some ideological positions that are even more complicated, including the idea that some are pushing right now that grading students supports white supremacy. How? Well, stick around. We'll try to explain this. Uh, Paul Bennett is the director and lead researcher of the Schoolhouse Institute. He is Canada's leading educational expert. We love having him on when we can get him. Paul, thanks for doing this. I really appreciate it. Nice to be back, Scott. So, Leaving aside for a moment the more controversial ideologies that we'll try to get to in a moment here, um, is grading old-fashioned? Is this a concept that we're ready to move on from because it doesn't serve its purpose anymore? Grading is under threat, as you pointed out in the introduction, because everywhere there are those that are challenging the legitimacy of grading practices, proposing alternatives. For example, in the state of Oregon, they just passed a state a law that they there would be no um, graduation marks. They would change all the graduation standards, and the governor signed it into law. And it was that um, grade marking had a de de detrimental effect on those marginal communities and uh, ethnocultural groups that were already disadvantaged. So that was the point you were raising there. But I think more to the point, um, as we begin to comprehend what's happened uh, through the maelstrom of the pandemic and its disruptive effects on school, we're seeing more and more that passing kids with inflated grades is more common than it was, and it's being defended and upheld on the basis of equity 
uh, social justice, or um, the new one is because the students have suffered so much trauma that uh, they we cannot possibly be marking them down or they can't be in any way penalized for the changes that have occurred as a result of the disruption in schooling. I mean, we've, we've been doing this for a while, not to the same degree, but I mean, we've, <clears throat> we've been very loath in recent years to fail or hold any student back, if, even if they're not ready, because of the potential damage to their psyche. And, and I mean, even with, with some schoolwork, am I correct that, I mean, we've been putting a lot of schools, school boards have been putting more emphasis on, show me how you get to the right answer. I don't really care if you get the answer, just show me how you get there and the thinking it's it's an interesting position that we've been sort of whittling away at the idea that you have to be able to actually do it as opposed to just the theory around doing it. My book, uh, The State of the System, makes a pretty powerful case for what's going on. And essentially this, I'll put it in a nutshell for your listeners, a cycle of diminished expectations and enhanced rewards um, that is reflected in grade inflation. Um, What we also know, Scott, is we do have the first data I'd like to share with your listeners on the Toronto District School Board has produced the first data on how students fared during the uh, pandemic and particularly uh, giving you great information on what's happened to marks and standards. And again, there's an increase in what we commonly call grade inflation. It's a report from the Toronto District School Board entitled Preliminary Findings of the Impact of COVID-19 on Student uh, Achievement in the Toronto Board. What it shows is if we take high schools, grade 9 to 12 credit courses, the average mark has gone from about 71, 72% to 76%. So while they're out of school, they were out of school for 24 weeks the average mark across the board has gone up from 71 to 76 percent. So remote learning then is fantastic. (laughs) Well, not really, because when you dig into the data, the students are saying they are missing all kinds of work, they've fallen behind, virtual learning isn't working, they miss their teachers, and they are far from being caught up with the work. Yet the marks don't reflect that. Here's another thing that the study shows, and this is great because it supports your contention at the outset of the show. Final exams were traditionally worth 30% of the course marks, but they've been reduced to nothing um, uh, or very little during the pandemic. Uh, Virtually all exams have been suspended as a component of graduation. So, for example, in grade 12, there's another study that the Toronto Board put out It showed that the average mark in June 2020, when there were no exams and there was no school from March on, the average mark on graduation went up 2% for all grade 12 students. The rationale being we don't want to put them at a disadvantage in applying for universities and colleges, which supports the contention that the the goal of equity and giving everybody... um, uh, higher marks than maybe they earn, has taken over the school system. Let me give you a dramatic illustration of the impact in grade one reading in the Toronto Board. Um, Before the pandemic, um, about 54% of all students uh, were not meeting 
um, we're, we're basically meeting grade level expectations. So 54% were meeting expectations. Now it's down to 45% of all students in the Toronto District Board are able to read fluently at the end of grade one. That's 6% less. There's a detailed study that shows some of the reading scores are down by 9%. So reading has suffered, marks are going up, and teachers are basically awarding marks that are far in excess of what the students have earned under normal, normal circumstances. So all in all, I think it supports your contention that um, essentially that um, there's, uh, we've got a cycle of diminished expectations and enhanced rewards going on. Well, okay, so a couple things. Uh, first, I, I don't want to take credit. This was not my suggestion. I'm picking up on brighter people than I by far, but nonetheless, I, your, your point is there. And the second thing is about diminished expectations. Look, I, I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a, I'm not a nothing, but I, I, I can't think of any place where lowered expectations have ever driven anyone to greater success. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And Rick Hess, the article that you cited there, and uh, Joanne Jacobs, her, her blog post, which you started at the beginning of the program, they make very clearly that um, promising equity and giving everyone higher marks or grades than they deserve or abandoning grades serves no one's purpose. And who does it hurt the most? Well, we think it, it, we know it hurts those who are struggling to begin with, those who are disadvantaged, those who are marginalized. They're the ones who pay uh, the highest price when you lower overall standards. Um, what the argument is that was put very effectively in that piece in uh, Education Week was that uh, we've abandoned all uh, pursuit of educational excellence and we've replaced it with equity. And what's happened during the COVID crisis is that equity has come to the fore and um, essentially any pursuit of educational excellence has withered even further. I don't know about you. Maybe maybe you're very different from me on how you've learned over the years. But I can tell you that, I don't know the number, 90% of the lessons I've learned and the things that I'm reasonably good at, if there are those things, mm-hmm. are things that I failed miserably at somewhere along the way and made colossal mistakes and was told by somebody, that's wrong, that's really wrong. And if no one had told me that was wrong, I would never have learned to go and do it right. I like to me, and maybe it's personally, maybe it's to me, but to me, mistakes and being corrected are the things that made me better at all the things that I'm now better at. Well, you're talking common sense, but that is not what prevails in educational circles. <laughs> Political correctness prevails. Um, race, uh, critical race theory is very, very popular. So is the notion that equity for everyone or excellence for everyone, which in some ways means mediocrity, um, spread widely and uh, throughout the entire system. So, I mean, I think uh, we're on to a critical uh, problem, one that I've described uh, elsewhere and in my books and articles as the great disconnect in education, and that is increasing levels of recognition and reward for students, uh, including, uh, you know, higher attainment levels for students, but um, a gap between that and their actual achievement levels as measured on tests and assessments. 
I am uh, in the process right now of watching the miniseries Band of Brothers again, probably the 15th mm-hmm. time I've watched it through. And it's a story, for those who don't know, it's a it's a 10-part series made by Steven Spielberg and Tom Hanks, but it's about the Easy Company, which was this elite paratrooping company in World War II that was legendary. And, and Paul, as I watch this, and the reason it may seem like a weird segue, they didn't get credit when you're out there fighting for trying really hard. They got credit for doing things well, being trained well, being corrected, and then on under fire, literally getting the right answer not for simply showing up or simply being told, oh, it's okay. And I know that's an extreme example, but I don't think in the real world, if you get hired by a company and you've gone through all your life being told there's no wrong answer, I don't think if you become an accountant or a doctor or a whatever, that no wrong answer is something that applies to anywhere except school. I would say there's um, stratification has has, has grown during the pandemic. And I'll give you... I think we've got a, a small number, a relatively small number, of outstanding students who will be able to weather any storm and survive and perhaps even do as well as they would have if they were in conventional sure. schooling. But we've got a growing number of students in both Canada and the United States who are just um, moving along, floating along, and expectations are disappearing. Exams, um, standardized tests are disappearing. And so they're, they're able to float through. And uh, we're facing, um, I think, a gathering storm. There's going to be some kind of reckoning along the way. It's probably going to be employers. Uh, one of the things that article says is we're preparing everyone as if they're going to be working in Taco Bell. And they were not going to be able to do much more <laughs> than that. Uh, and I think there's a fair amount of truth to that. That's one of the greatest challenges our system faces mm-hmm. in the years ahead. I wish we had a lot more time and we probably will down the road because this is such a huge topic and anyone who's got a kid or a grandkid, I'm sure should be worried about this, that, that their kid could be slipping through the cracks and you may not even know because this kind of grading is not being done to be able to measure your child or your grandchild or your neighbor or friend or you, if you're listening. Uh, Paul Bennett, we always love having you on. Thanks for taking time today to do this. Thank you for the invitation. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We are still waiting to find out where COVID really came from. We all know the story about the bats and the Wuhan wet market. And we've also probably all heard the speculation and opinions that it escaped from a high level virology lab in Wuhan, different views, very different views that seem difficult to make compatible somehow. But what if both could be true at the same time or sort of true? There's a report in the Telegraph, the United Kingdom, uh, that came out just the other day under the headline, Wuhan scientists sought to infect bats with coronavirus 18 months before the first case documents show. And it opens with this line. Scientists in Wuhan were planning to release enhanced airborne coronaviruses into Chinese bat populations to inoculate them against diseases that could jump to humans, reveal leaked grant proposals dating from 2018. Documents show that just 18 months before the COVID-19 cases appeared, researchers submitted plans to release skin-penetrating neoparticles containing novel chimeric spike proteins of bat coronaviruses into cave bats in Yunnan, located 2,000 kilometers southwest of Wuhan. Is this the smoking gun? I don't know. Let me bring in Professor Gordon Holden. He's Director Emeritus of the China Institute at the University of Alberta. He joins us now. Professor, thank you for the time today. Appreciate this. 
appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Uh, I certainly don't know what the truth is with this story. Uh, I don't think that anybody really knows what the truth is. And that seems to be the problem in this right now, besides the medical side of this. Uh, we're a year and a half into this. And are we really any closer to knowing where the origin of COVID really came from? Well, we certainly aren't there yet. We, aren't, we haven't gotten to the bottom of this mystery wrapped in an enigma, as Churchill might have said. But I think we're a little bit closer. I'm actually optimistic that we will in due course get to the bottom of it but the chinese government is not helping by not allowing foreign delegations to freely go to speak to their scientific colleagues go through the records etc that would certainly speed things up and i quite frankly i think that the u.s intelligence report that was recently provided to the white house said that they did not believe it was a bioweapon in other words Chinese were not about constructing a virus to attack the world. There are two possibilities now, and they they couldn't make up their mind between the two. They both are possible. One is a natural source. It just emerged, as SARS did in 2003 when I was in in China. Uh, But it also could have been an accidental release, and I guess the Telegraph article refers to that option. Uh, I, I don't have an opinion either way, but I think we will get to the bottom of it for one thing. Hundreds of people have been involved by now. Um, hundreds of people are alive. The, eventually, the records will become known to either more Chinese or abroad. I'm not sure how the U.S. intelligence conducted all the information they did. To example, conclude that the Chinese hierarchy did not know about the mm. virus before it had escaped. This is all very mysterious, but I... We do need to know, if only to help prevent it from happening again. And I think the Chinese are making a big mistake by not being open, given I don't think it was deliberate. It's the cover-up that gets the most complaints, as opposed to, let's say, an honest admission that they screwed up or that they don't know or whatever. Bring in the experts from abroad. Let's get to the bottom of this. That would have been a healthier response, which I think would have been better for them in the long run. What would be the outcome though if in if you're correct and if in time we do actually learn the cause of this and if whether by accident or intentional but if it was man-made or man-caused somehow even if it was completely by accident what's the outcome i mean is china then suddenly on the hook is there a reason for them in other words to now keep this as hidden as they can because if it turns out that somehow even if it was a goof up that they caused this can the world be coming after them for trillions of dollars well, good luck with that. Um, international yeah. law is a pretty weak read from my experience working in diplomacy. Uh, but I think the main concern is reputational. Um, the whole world's suffering. Uh, probably, you know, hundreds of thousands of people have died, millions plus, and we're not done with the thing. It's wrecking economies. It's ruining or at least complicating lives of the whole earth. There would be great anger. There is great anger already, I think, the fact that the Chinese have not been uh, upfront about it. But I think actually legal consequences, as in um, collecting reparations, uh, very hard to do to get a sovereign government to hand over cash. I think it's mainly their own, their own worries about their reputation. But again, to me, openness, admitting mistakes were made or that things weren't seen or they didn't act fast enough, whatever, it tends, in my view, to be less problematic than the cover-up. It's almost always the cover-up that is the right. biggest, the biggest problem. 
There's no real way I wouldn't think for the world to force the Chinese regime to open its doors to a real investigation. But do you believe there's, and I don't, I'm not talking about a war either, by the way, but I mean, do you believe there's any pressure point that would really get their attention enough to convince the leadership to look into this and allow the world to look into this properly? I think the problem is right now, the leadership is, is complicit in the cover-up, i.e. at least not being open about it. It's very hard for them to say, whoops, sorry we didn't let you in, sorry we didn't upfront of what we have. Um, I, that's why I think this may take some time, but I do believe that down the road you get a better idea. I mean, Tiananmen was super tightly kept secret. Eventually one of the people who was on the records keeper wrote a book and smuggled it out, and we now know a lot of the details about how that all played out. But that took years, not months. Do you believe, okay, do you believe that the records exist still or that they are probably all gone and so the only witnesses we would have would be oral witnesses? That is a possibility. That the, we know that uh, websites were scrubbed of information early on that would normally have routinely been put there. Obviously not the secret stuff that comes out of a high secret lab, but uh, level four lab, but uh, a lot of that stuff disappeared from public view. And it may be in some central lockup. Chinese are pretty compulsive record keepers, so I suspect it's still somewhere. Maybe not in Wuhan, but in some archive deep in the bowels of the Communist Party, perhaps in the state. But I don't know that for certain. But there's a lot of people who would know most of the answers. They're mostly still working at the Wuhan lab and would be in the best position to, to speak. There's one or two have come outside and spoken about it, but without any um, magic bullet that would put this to rest. Now, again, I'm going to refer to the Telegraph uh, story that people can find online and read that essentially suggests this was not intentional, but this was a boo-boo that, that, you know, scientists did. If Just for the sake of the discussion, let's assume that this is the case, that this is what really happened. Is there any upside to China from their perspective? Would there be any upside to being open at this point? Or at this point, there's nothing to gain from coming out and telling what really happened? Well, I think what, in the short term, there may not be anything. Now that they're already heavily invested in and not allowing folks in, and they're also pushing uh, some pretty dodgy stories, trying to pinpoint the origin in the United States in September of 2019, for example on the basis of no facts that I've been able to see or that have stood up to scrutiny. But in the longer run, if, let's say, a turnover leadership or, uh, that you could have had um, a greater openness. Back in, in the SARS in 2003, when I was in Beijing, the Chinese were hiding everything. And the people were not, even the Chinese people were not believing what they saw in the media uh, or read. Uh, the government realized they were losing control of it. They came in, fired the health minister, put in a real health minister who wasn't even a member of the Communist Party, and who began to get, uh, bring things, bring order. They could do that, but uh, given that Xi Jinping has made himself the, in charge of almost everything that happens in China, I think it'd be hard for him to completely escape uh, blame. And so I think we're going to see the lid being held tightly on mm. for perhaps even several more years. Yeah, you know, your your point, we got to run, but your your point is a really interesting one. I suppose that the way out of this would be to pick someone to be a scapegoat and point the finger at them and say they hid this. Unfortunately, 
even if that person had never done such a thing, I think we could probably guess what would happen to that person. And it doesn't sound like a particularly nice way for this thing to end, but I, I, maybe that's the only way to, to, to save face in this case. Well, I'd like to think they find who is responsible, assuming it is. And again, even the U.S. report oh, of course. wasn't of course. clear. But let's assume for a moment it was a boo-boo, a screw-up, bad management, um, holding people accountable, naming names, taking names, punishing those who've done so. But if it's not done in an open manner, you're quite right. If it's a sealed procedure in Chinese uh, ministry somewhere, they name the name and give a story, nobody can cross-examine or listen to the testimony. It won't be very convincing. Professor Gordon Holden, Director Emeritus of the China Institute, uh, thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. It's a pleasure for me. Thank you. Uh, For those who are interested, again, uh, the headline, Wuhan scientists sought to infect bats with coronavirus 18 months before first case documents show. Professor Holden doesn't know. I don't know. You don't know. We don't know if this is true or not. It's just a really interesting new report about what might have happened and what might have been the cause of what we've all been going through. You can read it and you can make your own opinions because I can't tell you what's true or not. I have no idea. Not on this one. You're listening to the Scott Radley show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to bring in our good friend, sports commentator, NFL official, Many other titles that he has on his business card. It's actually so big a business card, it folds out. It's like a centerfold f- business card. Steve Foxcroft is with us. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. It folds out just like the map I got out to try and figure out that trivia question. That's a tough one. It is yeah. a tough one. I now, think- I should also point out that Steve is a sideline official. He does the, the sticks at the Buffalo Bills games who are at home this weekend, right? So you're going to be yeah, working on the sidelines in Buffalo next- this weekend. Yeah, the next two weekends we're at home. We have uh, Washington, and then I believe Houston is in. Okay, so one thing that we're going to have to figure out here is um, many people who are watching wouldn't know or wouldn't necessarily spot you instantly. So is there a signal that you can give when the camera's on so everyone knows that's Steve? Okay, so the easiest way is I'm the only one that wears a red vest. So I carry the pole with the numbers on it. So okay, for the down marker, down, down numbers. Yeah, yeah, the down marker with the, so I'm first one, two, three, or four. I start on the visitor side, which is at the top of your screen, and end on the bill side. They try and make it even. So each team has the benefit of having the chains on their side uh, per, once per game, right? Once okay. per half. So the home team gets us in the second half. So I'm in the on the lower side of the screen in the second half if you're watching from home. I think I've asked you this question before, but I mean, you are so close to the field. Have you ever been wiped out? Oh, I, I stopped getting wiped out because I got afraid about five years ago, but it was once a season. The last time I got wiped out, it was CJ Springer, I believe was his name. And he wiped me out twice in one season and broke the pole and everything. And I, the worst one was Brian Cox from the Dolphins. Yep. The hated Brian Cox. Yes. He he came out of the tunnel one year and gave the finger to the Buffalo crowd and got fined uh, $10,000, and they said it was $5,000 for each finger that he gave because he gave it on each hand. And he sacked Jim Kelly on the sideline, near the sideline one time, and they both landed on top of me, 
And that was the closest I think I ever came to death. It was, <laughs> it was awful. And I just remember getting up. Uh, Jim Kelly looked at me and he just said, are you okay? And I just grunted, right? I said, yeah, I think so. And it's one of those ones like when you're walking down the street and you trip with nobody around, you just try to, you, you have to get up and pretend you're okay. Meanwhile, you're dying, right? I didn't think I was going to move again, but. Yeah, because you know that you know that probably the camera is going to come over there, and you know you don't want to be that guy who looks like you've just been squashed. So yeah, it's like, no, all good, all good. But so, Steve, a few many years ago, many years ago now, my parents, when I was I don't know in high school, my parents got tickets to the Blue Jays, and we were sitting on the first base side, second row, on the first base side, just behind first base, on the aisle. On the aisle, and we and I remember exactly they were playing the Yankees, and Roberto Kelly was up to bat, and he fouled one off. He was a right-handed batter, and he didn't he checked his swing, but he fouled one off that came into the bleachers, into the stands at a million miles an hour, and it would have killed one of us. But the guy across the aisle stuck his hand up, and the ball hit his palm of his hand and stuck there, and he caught it. And of course the camera is on him. So he's holding it up and smiling because he knows he's going to like a minute or two later, he, he, he's just moaning and his hand looks like the guy from Raiders of the Lost Ark who picked up the burning medallion. <laughs> his, his, you know, the palm of his hand had been imprinted with the laces and had now swollen to twice its size, but the camera's on. You got to look like you're happy about it. And nothing hurts. I was going to say, I used that line just the other day describing that to somebody and i use that the raiders of the lost ark guy who hit who grabbed the medallion but it was hot right and it, yep. and it burned it into his hand i used that yesterday That's but the, as i say but, when you know the camera's on you got to make it look like you're fine you got to make it. now my story like that happened once i went to a tennis match and it was in atlanta in the, the arena down there when it was called the Omni still. And I got baseline tickets front row for the ten, to this tennis match, uh, and it was Sanfras and Agassi. And if you remember, Sanfras was like a, a Ronich, like his serve oh, yeah. was. But what I didn't understand at the time, now I, I love tennis and I play it and I understand it now, but at the time I didn't. So we're standing right in the territory where we're sitting in the front row, baseline, right in the territory that when he serves an ace, it's bouncing off us. <laughs> so I tried to do similar to what you just described, the guy beside you grabbing the foul ball or the, the check swing foul. I just thought I could barehand one of Sanford's serves. Not uh, a chance uh, because of yeah. what you said. The ball is spinning like the spin rate there is no hope and and then i see it now it, like no wonder the ball boys right at the u.s open recently they can't do it you don't see them try and do it because they know better you know the ball boys at the u.s open and the other tennis tournaments and i don't want to get like weird or graphic here but somebody has to give them permission because when they the baseline ones when they stand there their resting position is the military at ease position where their hands are together behind their back, they got to at least let the guys on the baseline fold their hands in front of them or there. Because how many times now in bloopers have we seen poor linesmen or ball boys? Boom, right there. Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. No, no protection. Yeah. yeah it's, no um, protection. And they're, they're sitting ducks too, because they're right in the Nothing you can do. Fire, but 
Nothing you can do. Now, have you ever got a foul ball at a Jays game or any baseball game where, like, literally, like the old school foul ball where it goes up, 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 and it does land within your vicinity? So I'm, I, if, if I've told this on the air before, I apologize. And I, for those who, if you are hearing it again, I apologize for boring you with this. But three or four years ago, three years ago, I guess my wife and I went to California for a trip and we got, and the Jays were playing in Anaheim against the Angels. And so we got seats and moved up very close to the first base. And in the batting practice, I caught a foul ball, never caught one before. And so I took a picture with it and then handed it to a kid who was wearing a Blue Jays shirt who was there. And then eight pitches into the game, I caught another foul ball. And so I'm now two balls in, eight pitches into the game. And I told my son, who's a big baseball player, I, we, we told him we were going to be at the game. So he was just, he had to work early the next morning, but he turned on the TV to see if he could spot us. And I'm taking a picture of this ball that I'm going to give to another kid again, just to send to him as a text to say, got another one. And he texts me before and he goes, did I just see you on TV? Before I could even read his message, the next pitch came scorching towards me and hit the chair right behind me and was coming. But, and Steve, I would have caught it, but it was coming so stinking fast that I had my hand out and then went, no way, not breaking my hand to catch it. But I could have had three foul balls before the game was nine pitches old that day. (laughs) That is incredible because, you know, it is, I think we all want that opportunity and it is something like, to get a foul ball. And I like what you said there too. And to give it to the kids, like that's the best part of it. To see a kid happy is, is right. Just, I don't need it. I don't need it. Yeah, exactly. So, but, but to have it happen, like the odds of it happening are incredible. And then you have it three times like that. That's that's And, and the proof. And the best thing is Steve, that because it was a televised game, they all are now. This is not one of those stories where I don't, I've actually on my PVR, the game is still on my PVR so that I could prove it. If some, I can go to that spot and I, yeah, that was twice in two pitches that it, uh, that it came there. Uh, While we're talking, go ahead. Let me just let you tell you this one too. I had it happen this year in Dunedin when I was finishing up doing the Raptors games down there, I had an opportunity to go to some Jays games in Dunedin because it's right there. And the one time I went, I thought, I'm going to try the outfield. They had, like, standing room only out in right field there because it was Dunedin, and I wanted to see the whole stadium and get the whole experience. And I'm out there, and we're playing the Red Sox, and you know how our games went against the – when I say our games, the Jays, right? Like, you know how the Jays games went against the Red Sox early this year? They were clobbering us. Yep. So I'm standing out there in right center field, and it's the same sort of thing. The first inning, the Red Sox hit two home runs and another one right off the fence where I happened to be standing. And my phone blew up just from friends back here at home saying, are you at the Jays game? And are you in in right center field? Because we've seen you like three of the first four batters hit the ball. One was right to my right. One was right to my left. And the other one hit the wall right in front of me. It was crazy. I'll bore you with one more. And, and again, I, I realize this is like telling fishing stories for people. And, but not, um, years ago, my son was probably 12, no, 13, I guess. And his baseball team went to a game in Cleveland and we're in the outfield in batting practice. Again, the Jays were there and Bautista is taking batting practice and he hits one 
And my son, of course, who had been well-trained in baseball, that when you see a fly ball and you're going to catch it, you call your, you call the other fielders off. So he, he's 13, he's running, weaving through people, tracking this, calling all the other people off. Like they're going to listen to him. He caught it anyway. Uh, and the, the video ended up on YouTube on, on, uh, online wow. on an America's funniest home videos. That is if you can believe that. So I like anyway, it. we're talking about baseball. I want to ask you about the Jays last night. Uh, there had been a, a little crankiness in the series with Tampa leading up to last night, especially with Kevin Kiermeyer, their outstanding Tampa's outstanding center fielder. Anyway, near the end of the game, Kiermeyer gets up and he gets drilled by Ryan Barucki, who just you know decides to throw at him and send the message. Are you a guy who is a fan of the code and a fan of? throwing at batters to send a message or are you a guy who says no no i don't like any of that stuff just play baseball and on with it i guess i'm old school that way so i'd say and it's weird to say i'm a fan of it because i'm a fan of it as long as it's done the right way too so i just want to preface my comments with that it has to be done the right way you don't throw to injure the guy in terms of you don't throw to maim him you don't throw at his head or anything like that and i think baraki did the exact perfect thing because he hit him square in the numbers and i'll ask you this because you thought like you said it he he chucked it at him but do you think that was as much heat as he had like you you don't throw you throw it fast enough where he can't get out of the way of it but i think he could have put more mustard on it if he wanted to and throw throw more of a heater i think it well in so what if you're the guy who's up to bat if you're if you're standing there and you're going to get hit in between the numbers even if he's got a little more heat, is there a big difference between being plunked by a baseball at 92 and at 95? <laughs> yeah, good point. <laughs> I mean, he might have been damage. able to rear back, but see, I, I, I'll I, be honest with you on this one, Steve. I've, I go back and forth. I really do. Like, there's times when I say this is the stupidest thing ever, and, you know, you're, you're talking about a weapon, basically, because even if the pitcher makes a mistake, like, you can seriously do damage to a guy. Mm-hmm. And then there's times when I go, well, but... This is a sport that doesn't, it doesn't have contact and the sport has taken all the contact out. You can't slide hard into bases now. You can't run into field there. You know what? If this is the thing that sort of pops the balloon and, and, and settles things down by sort of picking the scab, then, you know, but again, like I, I thought that when, for example, when Batista and when the Jays in Texas were huge rivals five or six years ago and Bush right at the end of their series, drilled Bautista because of what he did uh, with the bat flip. Mm-hmm. I thought, you know what? That, that, that was that was ridiculous because, you know, the bat flip was, it was, it was in the game. It was a heat of the moment. It was an excitement thing. I don't think he was trying to show anybody up. He was excited. And I thought throwing at a guy for that was ludicrous. And maybe you can make the same case with this one, with Kiermaier, that, I mean, what he did was he picked up a, a piece of paper that showed the Jays signs and strategies and stuff yeah, that had like fallen onto the field. Yeah. And so, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I go back and forth and I, I, I you know, I, I can't really say to you that I'm totally consistent on this one. It sort of seems like depending on the moment, I seem to be okay or not. Okay. And not, not just, is it the Jays or not? Like there's lots All of right. others. There's lots of times the Jays guys have thrown at someone. I go, that's stupid. Yeah, you know, so here's my take on it, though. When I said I'm old school and I'm okay with it at the at the start, where I want to preface it, too, is what I'm not okay with is how they've changed the rules in the last several years where, like, the warnings I find are absolutely ridiculous. 
And even last night, they come out and, and you see Joe West, you see him tell Berecki, like, you got to go. So, like, to me, it would be the next guy that should go. Like, that's, oh, you got you to gotta give him the, uh, you got to give him the benefit of the doubt that he hit a guy. But that's the first guy that's been hit in the whole series. And they played each other a lot lately, too. So I don't like the new rules that they put in. Or, you know, when the one guy hits someone, now let's take the Kermeyer thing out of play. So one guy hits someone in, it's retaliation. Now they warn both teams. So the next guy doesn't get a chance to get even. And that's the part that bugs me. Like, like make that is that takes away the old school part of it. There's also the element, and you're right. And there's also the element that you know there's a reason why the United States, for example, has nuclear weapons. And despite what some people will say, I, I don't believe it's because they ever want to use them. You have those nuclear weapons as a deterrent because someone who decides they want to do something has to know that all right. You want to do that? You want to send a bomb on a nuclear, send a nuclear bomb to the states? Your country will be reduced to a crater within about ten minutes. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, to me, those warnings and throwing guys out. You want to throw at our guy? All right, you go ahead and throw mm-hmm. at our guy. But guess mm-hmm. what's going to happen? Your best player is going to come up to bat, and we're going to drill him. That's and right. so, having that deterrent in the game, it doesn't always work. But I think you're right. I think when you have one guy who can chuck a ball at a guy at 95 miles an hour and then the other guy can't do it or he's going to get suspended, that, you know, it seems it like a pretty extends, good trade-off for the first yeah, team. It extends the rift. You know, that's why Marty McSorley uh, did so well and had a great career, right? Because who was he skating beside and protecting all those years? And they were saying, yeah, go ahead. Take your shot at Gretzky. But guess who's beside him and going to clean house if you do? Like, an old school, right? And let me just, the Kermeyer thing too. I think what he did, when you saw it back on video, he legit picked it up. And he, I believe him when he says he thought it was his own card slipping out of his back pocket. But where I thought he was wrong is when they sent the bat boy over to get it. And he goes, no, we're not giving it back. Like, just give it back. Who cares? And you could have photocopied it by then in the back room, right? Like, just give it back at that point. I thought that was dumb. I did like his line, though, is it doesn't matter what we know, we're not going to hit off of Robbie Ray anyways. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I, uh, you know, I, I just, it, it's one of those facets of baseball that I, I, I mean, I, I guess it's similar. I mean, you draw the, the the example. I guess it's similar in a lot of ways to fighting in hockey. And, and you know, I hate I hate those stupid fights at the beginning of a game when the game hasn't even started and two guys just drop the gloves thinking, well, we can, you know, get our team going. That stuff, those those pre-setup fights, I hate that stuff. But mm-hmm. I don't have a problem. If the fighting that I'm okay with in hockey is not, again, not those and not the ones where a guy gets hit with a clean body check and you decide you have to fight a guy. It's the ones where if you want to chop at a guy's feet or if you want to hit him dirty, you better be aware that you're going to have to pay for that because I always believe the NHL discipline system doesn't work most of the time. So if you make it so that if you want to do that, you're going to pay the price. See, that's the that to me is where fighting still has a place in hockey, not the other stupid stuff, not the yeah, other I, stupid stuff. But I agree. And even like look at Austin Matthews, right, for the Leaf fans around. Um, Austin Matthews just had wrist surgery or something like that. Well, wh- how did that happen? Probably because he got hacked and they know where 
they're good at it, right? In the ankles and the wrists, they know where to get a guy. And if you have that old school protection, maybe that kind of stuff, it, it goes away a little bit. Beyond that, now that every team in the NHL knows that Austin Matthews has had wrist surgery, mm-hmm. what do you think the chances are that, I'm not saying guys are doing it necessarily to injure him, but what do you think the chances are his wrists get a few taps this year just to Absolutely. slow him down? Yeah. And then, you know, the interesting thing about Austin Matthews, too, everyone talk about maybe he'll score 50. You know, he was on pace last year, then he got hurt, and so on and so forth. Well, the thing that you just mentioned is one of the one of the things that he's going to have to go up against. And I think also, nobody's mentioned this yet. They talk about it from a team aspect, but not from an individual aspect. They want him to score 50 goals. But look at the schedule they're going to be playing this year. Look at the teams that they're going to be going up against. I think it's going to be tough for guys like Matthews and Marner to put up the points that everybody's just expecting them to do because they did last year. It's uh, We will be talking hockey down the road, but um, I'd love to hear from people what you think about the idea of baseball pitchers throwing at guys, whether you're okay with it or not. Uh, Radley at 900CHML.com. R-A-D-L-E-Y, Radley at 900CHML.com. I'd love to hear about that. Uh, in the meantime, Steve Foxcroft, love having you on. Thanks for doing this again tonight. Take care. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.